Welcome back to Centering the Margins, the companion podcast to the book, How to Teach Contentious Issues in the Classroom by Francisco Ramos, which is available for $4.99 on Apple Books. As always, I'm Michael Betsecond, and I'm joined by the author himself, Cisco Ramos, and we are always glad you came back. If you're finding us for the first time, welcome. Be sure to check out our previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast service you prefer. This week, we'll talk about visual literacy and improving communication. Hey, uh, Cisco, how you feeling this week, my friend? Feeling wonderful, feeling rested, relaxed, excited, and I'm so looking forward to today's conversation. I um, am a big believer that, especially when we talk about, you know, spaces. So my, my partner works in a biliteracy space. And especially mm-hmm. when we talk about language justice, we do a very poor job of, you know, foregrounding anybody else. And a lot of times uh, mm-hmm. we're constantly trying to see kind of like what you were saying, like we want to see what someone's capable of based off of if they understand English words specifically. And so you can have, you know, uh, a lot of different cultured students who understand very gigantic uh, abstract terms like a respect or kindness or love. Like they understand them deeply. Um, But because they don't know cat or dog or the in English um, or, or they don't understand the context of a mountain, like those mm. things are things that they are disenfranchised by and therefore folks look at them and go you're illiterate because of um and you know especially in the field of documentary studies we constantly are having conversations about there were groups of us that weren't allowed to be quote-unquote literate like it was illegal for us to understand how to read and write um and that's some of that stuff shows up today like generationally we've tried to overcome it in a lot of ways but some of it does show up and so the auspice of visual literacy um you know, being that it's about learning, being that it's about communication and being that it's about accessibility, you know, how do you work that into a classroom early? What are things that you did in your classrooms or do in your classrooms to ensure that students immediately know like, hey, we're going to have a shared experience today. So I don't have to have pre-knowledge about the thing. What are things that you do? Yeah. So there's a handful of things. And I want to start with a series of assumptions that I always um, try to challenge, right? So one of them is always truly, um, everybody has something to offer about a subject, right? right? I may not be an expert in, in something, but based on my experience, I can talk about or contribute something that is related to what we're talking about. Um, I think also part of it is frankly, we live in a highly visual and very semiotic society. Um, if, and if it's not happening in the classroom, I guarantee you it's happening on computers, cell phones, um, while you're driving in your car, it is near impossible to actually, um, go one single day. And I would, I would argue this, it is impossible to go one single day without seeing an advertisement somewhere. Right. Exactly. 
Exactly. And, 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 you know, and in the guidebook, I talk briefly that, you know, according to Forbes on average, an American sees somewhere between four and 10,000 advertisements a day. So given that we're in a highly visual society, given that, you know, not only this guidebook, but our conversations, Michael, have always been about, you know, how do we expand the contours of participation? It's even challenging, you know, this notion of what it means to be traditionally literate. So if I have to explain a concept or, you know, introduce artwork in such a way that it um, serves as a gateway for students who, for reasons that I am likely not aware of, are grappling with obstacles, again, that I probably haven't experienced. How do I put together um, a series of images that can convey um, something to the classroom? Right. Right. Either something that can spark a conversation something that we can all look at collectively together. Now, in my in my own classroom, at the very beginning of the semester, what I try to do often is, because we're at Duke, I make it a point to reach out to the academic staff over at the National Museum of Art. Now, for those who aren't in Durham, the National Museum of Art is Duke's uh, campus uh, art museum. It is a, an absolutely phenomenal place. And at the same time, I understand that not, every, not everybody has... Um, access to a museum. So one of the things I've done in the guidebook is I have outlined without exaggeration, at least nine or 10 different museums that whose work primarily falls in the public domain. So if you're interested in actually seeing literally millions of images and works of art, and if you want to use them in your class, all of that information is there. Um, So what I try to do again is for a particular classroom discussion, I, I'm a big fan, as you probably know by now, of trying to think simply. Um, what am I trying to convey? What do I hope my students get out of the experience? Um, if somebody is a non-expert in insert whatever it is that we're doing, um, does this image um, help them or can it help them contribute something to this conversation that quote unquote experts may be missing or be, right. may be taking right. for granted? Um, so again, oftentimes I like to start with an image or two that we can begin discussing or begin looking at for reasons of accessibility, for reasons of contribution, um, and really pushing the boundaries on what does it mean to be literate today? Exactly. Exactly. And I think in large part, you know, uh, when we have conversations about the number of things that folks are exposed to and the ways in which we define things like literacy. Um, You know, one of the things that we want to really foreground is the function of exposure, Um, exposure to Mm -hmm. something like a museum. The fact that, and this is one of the things that, you know, I I think is, is uh, as somebody who works in the field of documentary studies, it's really easy to kind of get lost in what we have deemed, quote unquote, the, the knowledge that you should have to be a, a, a yeah. good student, whatever that means. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the, the elements and one of the ways that we move away from that is through, uh, you know, these, these large vats of, of images that are available to us online to be able to just take in and to drink in, but also to, to engage things that are uh, pop cultural. You know, the fact that mm-hmm. you start with a George Lucas quote is in is is yeah. kind of foregrounding that like 
Star Wars is something that has probably met more people in places that they didn't intend for it to than, mm-hmm. I don't know, uh, a Rembrandt. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and like every, I don't know about everybody, but a lot of people have seen Star Wars, right? Right. right. And there's so many metaphors. It's great storytelling. So you could easily, um, and I've heard people do it. You, instead of you, using Star Wars as a way to talk about Buddhism, for yes. example. Yep. Yep. You know, I, I mean, and again, you know, it's, it's this very um, strategic, strategic way of broadening a conversation. Um, and, you know, and I, I think something you said earlier that I think is spot on about what I would call gatekeeping, you know, and I think this is a, a trap a lot of people fall into is it's very easy to construct what we think of as what it means to be learned. Mm-hmm. I, I use that in quotation yeah. marks. What does it mean to be educated? Yep. And frankly, like being educated and learning aren't necessarily the same thing. Not at all. Not at all. I've seen people who are very good at school and they didn't learn anything. And yet you look at their grades and, you know, they're doing really, really well. And we're having a conversation about something. And it's like, wow, I, you know how to play this game right. and this set of skills that you've acquired over time these forms of capital that you've accrued through various experiences um, is what's carrying you, not what you've learned. Exactly. It becomes a social and a class thing more than a, an actual learning. Exactly. Thing. And I think to your point, you know, when we talk about things that are, uh, I mean, li- literacy is a, is a class statement. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the mm-hmm. ability to have been able to have engaged, like, the difference between a student who lived in France and went to the Louvre or heck the difference between a student, you don't have to live in France. The difference between a student who's from the United States, whose family has the means and wherewithal to take them to Paris, to go to the Louvre, to have seen things. And I'm using this as the museum uh, conversation to have shown them with their Mm -hmm. own eyes, things that I've only read about. Yeah, there is a defined mismatch because the student who went to the Louvre will tell you, you know, let me tell you about the texture of the Mm -hmm. Egyptian, uh, like in the Egyptian wing, like there's things that I can touch and form and feel in my hands that I can't otherwise do Mm -hmm. in a book. And, and that's one of the ways, frankly, if we think about like the kind, those forms of capital, where if you have a student who um, or know somebody, frankly, who, who has, um, enjoyed those experiences. And that's not a bad thing. It's just your experiences are experiences. Um, you know, one of the things that comes with that though, is the gradual, um, accrual of capital. Exactly. Treat it like a bank account, right? If you have, if you have enough, they give you more capital just for having capital. And because you have a little bit more capital, you get more capital. Um, and that could be anything from social in terms of who, you know, Cultural, you know, you go to museums, go to plays, go to orchestras, um, performances and whatnot. Um, and economic capital, you just have straight cash in a yep. bank account um, and they just give you more. Yep. So it accrues. There's no question. I think that's one of the biggest, um, you know, maybe maybe this is way out of the context of this guidebook, but certainly how inequities are reproduced. Um, right. Exactly. One of the one of the most. And, and again, this is way out of the guidebook <laughs> and is. In, a, in an entirely different field. Uh, Thomas, Thomas Piketty, right? But Thomas Piketty, French economist, brilliant man. Um, one of the insights from his book around capital in the 21st century was 
um, that uh, people who are super wealthy will get more in, in how, how do you describe it? It's like you get more money back. You'll make more money based off of your interest um, than you'll ever be able to actually spend. Right. Like, and right. I forget exactly how he says it, but you get so much dividend back from your experiences and how much money you have that it's almost impossible to spend. Um, and so it becomes this crazy point where, you know, we talk about capital, you know, in this case, in strictly monetary terms, but I think the same is true in, in cultural, because you do learn these various ways to perform literacy. You do learn these very um, specific ways to talk about how you know these kinds of things so that you can gain access to certain exactly. rooms and you aren't relegated or confined exactly. to others. Exactly. Which when we talk about the function of literacy in general, which, you know, taking that and really kind of bearing it down inside of the guidebook, when we talk about the function of literacy in general, part of it in communication, part mm -hmm. of it is the ability to know when to push and pull. Part of it, you know, mm -hmm. my mother used to tell me um, all the time. So, you know, I, I we talked about this growing up in abject poverty and we would we went to a private school. Uh, I was a voucher mm -hmm. student. And one of the things that my parents would always say is, should you go to one of your classmates houses, act like you've been somewhere before, yep. act like you've been somewhere before. And the reason that they would say that was because my literacy in having seen a larger, well, you know, well furnished home was minimal. Mm -hmm. My experience mm -hmm. in that area was minimal, but if I could behave as though I had been there, I would be invited mm -hmm. back. And this is yeah. one of the things that we talk about with relation to functions of imposter syndrome, because we have to fake cool. it like we've been in those spaces for students who have lived in marginalizations mm -hmm. or who've lived in the margins, because we have to fake it for so long. There's a point where we get to this dissociative space where we're not quite sure what we have actually experienced and what we haven't actually experienced. Yeah. And, 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 and what's wild to me. So, so to give you a, a personal story, it's also one of these things where, um, you know, we there are certain parts of your experience that that resonate with mine growing mm -hmm. up. And one of the things I remember the most, um, you know, so I went to the University of Michigan for undergrad, received a world class education in the honors program. And it was hard. It was incredibly hard. And I was right. surrounded by very brilliant people. And I'm just happy to be in the room. Right. Um, so those are the rooms I want to be in. But I remember going back to Texas and I have, you know, you know, I'm, I'm reading, I don't know how many pages a week I'm interacting with, um, some of the brightest people I've ever met in my life. And then you go back to the environment in which you grew mm -hmm. up. And so for me, it was always this, you know, here we've primarily been talking about literacy. Um, we talk about capital, but this, in, this very deep sense of belonging, um, that definition began to shift. And so in, in my own experience, go back to Texas and hang out with, people I grew up with and it's, it starts in these little ways where you're, you're using slightly different words, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and then, and then it's sort of like, Oh man, then it starts with like a sense of humor thing or what you find is funny to what you really care about to, um, and it sounds really, really dumb, but even it can be something as innocuous as the kind of coffee you yep. drink. Yep. Right. So these little subtle marker identity markers that, let you know that there's something shifting here and how I'm defining or used to look at 
what it means to be literate, what it meant to yep. belong is very much in flux and it's changing. And I think that's a, that's something I wanted to foreground too, is, um, you know, I, I know that this entire guidebook, we've talked about a contentious issue. Um, this chapter is very much rooted around how do we improve visual literacy and communication? And I think the invisible word here is, um, is belonging, yeah. right? Yeah. Cause I, 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 I don't know about you, but, um, you know, one of the things I'm very grateful growing up is I had two uh, amazing, and, and I say I, I still do, they're both alive very well, uh, parents who are um, really took the time similar to, to um, what sounds like members of your family who are very slowly trying to introduce you to different spaces and trying to help you reconcile, at least in my experience, I'm going to start using <laughs> I, help me try to reconcile, you know, we can go to a museum. My mom was a big fan of checking out uh, Le Mis, the, the musical performance before mm -hmm. the movie, um, as a way of just exposure and trying to get a sense of like, okay, there are these different worlds that you're trying to right. navigate. You don't quite have the language, but you can tell there's something there. And they're just trying to sort of, in the ways that the people around you can to prepare right. you, because they know there's something, and, and I'm sure there was probably something about you, Michael, that signaled to the folks around you that um, that there's something about you. And I think, I can certainly say in my case, I think that was the case. Um, mm -hmm. But this notion of literacy, belonging, um, and particularly in these kind of environments, I think is absolutely sensible. Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, and even like going back to your statement of behaviors that you began to, to, to foreground or pick up or do even when you went back home. Like I remember the right after I got to college, you know, I thought the mm -hmm. way that you showed that you were uh, enlightened or becoming educated or having the classical college experience was and I'm this yeah. is so silly was to read the New York Times while eating a cream cheese bagel, drinking an orangina. That was... What's an orangina? An orangina, does that come in like in a glass it bottle? sure does. Okay, I know what you're it talking is, about. It is wow. a very... Okay, I haven't seen one of those in a dude, while. Dude, it is one of my yeah. favorite drinks. <laughs> but it's, it, is, it is a super <laughs> bougie thing. And I didn't realize it's, it's you know, it's, I think it's uh, either Spanish or French in its origin. Had no idea. I just mm -hmm. discovered it one day. I was like, this looks like it's something I'm supposed to do right now. And so I started doing that on a regular. The funny part is that mm -hmm. I, I had a little bit of money. Like when I say a little, I mean, I had mm -hmm. like a hundred dollars that had been put in my account yeah. that was supposed to last me for several months. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You yeah, can't yeah, yeah, keep yeah. up that behavior for several months on a hundred dollars. No. Um, that's an excellent yeah. Saturday. <laughs> I'm just I, don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know. You know? Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't exactly, go far. Exactly. Exactly. And those are uh, to, to the point of like the way in which your if your parents handed you a little bit of quote unquote walking around money, which n seldom happened, seldom happened. But when it did happen, yeah. it was like, here's $10. Go out and have a good time. And you're like, I, I <laughs> might be able to get you the, the bus. Like, I don't know, <laughs> like that. Woo, what a great time. <laughs> I mean, well, I think $10 in taxes would be something like, well, let me get you gas for your car that I can drive around. Exactly. That, exactly. You know? Those kinds of things <laughs> are what we're thinking about. So, um, but anyway, so yeah, going back to this, this, this idea of like literacy, there's a reason that I thought that that was the behavior that I was supposed to have. And it was because it's what I had seen on television. 
It wasn't something that I had experienced. Mm-hmm. It's what I had seen performed. And there's this performativity. I know we always like to oscillate around the functions of performativity. Um, but there's a performativity mm-hmm. about how you orient yourself in a space. It's the the joke when you go to a museum and they're like, somebody looks at you and says, so what do you think about this? You know, name the artist who painted this picture, or this piece that you're looking at. And you're like, uh, well, I think it's, you know, uh, and then you're like, you're trying to act all debonair. So you're like, oh, well, I, I think uh, what the artist was trying to get at was, and you're like, no, stop, yeah. stop with that. Just be honest and be yeah. like, well, I'm not quite sure that I understand it, but what I see in, and this is where we get into the the functions of, uh, of some of the ways in which visual literacy has been developed and how it's helpful for pedagogical outlets and practice. Um, the ability to show or to talk about what you see uh, at the Center for Doc Studies, mm-hmm. we have a program called uh, Literacy Through Photography. That's literally what it's called, LTP. Mm-hmm. It's headed up by this brilliant woman. Her name's Katie Hyde, um, and she is a protege of uh, of the original um, creator, Lindy, uh, Wendy Ewald. She was the one who, you know, she wrote a book on it. You can pick it up if you want to. It's it's available. All that stuff exists out there. And it's this incomprehensive, in-depth program that allows for students to be able to develop their social emotional skill through a visual element you take a photo of something that you know mm-hmm. there's a theme that you're after then in some of the prompts for example are you know we have an alphabet that a, a class will be doing an alphabet project and you break the group you break the class up into groups where each group has you know a handful of letters that they're going to work through and then after mm-hmm. you do the you've broken that up each student goes and reinterprets uh, based off of what the theme is. So if it's home, for example, I'm using a, a real example that I see in my head that I've helped talk about a lot. So forgive me if you've heard this story before. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, <laughs> but uh, you know, it allows for students to make sense of their surroundings. So what does home mean to you? Well, home to you, Cisco, may mean something different to me, which may mean something different mm-hmm. to, you know, uh, to Carmen. You know, home is different mm-hmm. depending on who you are. And especially what kind of socioeconomic status you've lived in. And so to be allowed to, or, or, or whatever, you know, cultural background you've had. So to be able to make sense of that in that way, when you're in a museum, to be able to tell you what's literally in the image that you're seeing is going to, it reminds me of Slumdog Millionaire, kind of who wants to be a millionaire, that whole where every answer was related to something because he had lived through it. And like mm. that, that element of visual literacy uh, kind of takes over. So I, I say all of that to, to really round us back to um, kind of the development of visual thinking strategies. Can you talk a little bit about what visual thinking strategies are and why those are, are significant uh, within the realm of pedagogical outlets and practice? So visual thinking strategies actually was, in, was developed at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Um, and at the time, uh, the, the powers that be were basically trying to say, um, you know, what is a practical way that not only can we engage, um, and make art more engaging, Mm -hmm. but how do we improve critical thinking? How do we improve visual literacy and how do we improve communication through facilitated discussions of images and artworks? Now, one, you know, you've probably seen this in practice and have not really recognized, what's going on. So if you go to a museum or if you go to community events and there's some kind of outreach going, uh, going on and 
if there is a guided discussion over um, a, a particular piece of art, mm-hmm. that is probably visual thinking strategies. And it comes from MoMA and it was developed, um, I believe, in the 1990s. And it's it's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. So every VTS discussions mm-hmm. uh, begins with a careful selection of images, right? We Again, this is very... Um, it's curated. Yeah, it's curated. You want to make sure it makes sense to the context that you're working in. Now, the reason why um, I would highly suggest to use images that might seem ambiguous upon first glance is that, you know, frankly, from a pedagogical perspective, I would argue that ambiguity is positive. Right. And it's positive because it opens the door for exploration and for uh, students and for people who are in the room to examine individual and collective interpretation and meaning. Right. Right. Um, so, um, so typically what happens is let's say we're going into a museum, whether it's the Nash or whether it's MoMA, let's say it's somewhere else. Um, you as the instructor go select any piece of artwork. Now, it, because we're in COVID, there is a long list of materials that are in the public domain, but just pick some images, any of them. And, you know, there are really three questions at the heart of every VTS discussion, I'll describe each question and elaborate a bit more why that question really matters. So the first one is truly, what do you see? We're here in a lovely place, beautiful piece of artwork. Um, you know, just pro tip, whatever you do, uh, encourage your students not to look at the placard so they don't exactly. know who the artist when. Exactly. They There's not the official spiel, you know, this means yada, yada, yada. Um, but what do you see? And I really like this question because it's accessible and it's a very easy way to open any kind of discussion of visual material. Um, and frankly, I, I would argue it serves two purposes. The first one is that, you know, since students are coming into any kind of learning environment with a diverse array of experiences and perspectives. And again, as you've probably heard me say about a million times, you know, I think one of the hardest parts about being a teacher is that we don't know what kind of experiences or what students know when they walk through the door, is that that very simple question helps focus attention on concrete elements. Mm. So what do you see? You see colors. If so, is it really red? Is it blue? What kind of shapes? Um, Is that really a, a circle, a square, a rhombus, what have you? Number of people. Is it seven people? Are they in the foreground? Are they in the background? Landscape? Are there mountains? Are we on a? Uh, is that a, is that really a street? But just the concrete elements that are in a, in an image, right? So this gets everyone essentially on the same page, and I think that's the really really important part. We're getting on the same page, and this is a really great opportunity for students to begin to start really, you know, in a in a very subtle way get to the point where can of you know can we really agree that we're all looking at the same thing right. is the point right that's the right. first half of it so we're there we have this lovely image it relates to everything we're going on what do you see was really can we get on the same page the second part to that is you know can we as best as we can background uh, the potential um uh, application of interpretation and hopefully try to get students to not get at some kind of um, what an image means or what it signifies. Uh, I spoke to um, a really good friend of mine who is, you know, in the field of um, psychology and neuroscience here at Duke. And 
I, I posed a very simple question, which was, is it possible for people to look at something and just to look at something and not sort of, you know, project meaning on it, right? You see something mm. and almost automatically, we know a lot of research out of the world of implicit bias basically says no, because we we do this instantaneously and we do this without really right. even thinking, right? right? Um, so it's a way of saying like humans by our very nature, we automatically give meaning and we apply interpretation. So asking something like, what do you see? And, you know, focus on the concrete. Are there trees? Is that a river? What have you? Right. right? So that's the first question. I know it, it sounds kind of goofy, like, well, what do you see? And it's like, no, no, no. There's a lot actually behind this question. Well, and one of the things that a lot of adults tend to get in the way of is that we have been taught to make meaning before we've seen what we've actually thought we've understood. Um, mm -hmm. And the what do you see requires us to reduce down to the basics. And so mm -hmm. we are able to potentially disrupt our meaning making in the process of making that meaning and give ourselves the actual proclivity mm -hmm. to think thoroughly through something. Yeah. And that's a, that's a really beautiful way to put it. It's a very, it's a very bottom up approach to, um, many things that we've talked about, right. you know, um, can we slow this down? Can we all agree that we're looking at the right. same thing? Can we all come to some kind of consensus that we all see the same basic ingredients for this image that's right. in front of us? Um, so yeah, very well put, very well put. Michael. Thank you. Um, the second question, again, is fairly simple, fairly straightforward. What do you see? The second one is, well, really, what makes you say that? And again, I, what makes you say that? It's a way of building upon um, student consensus on what is actually concretely present in the image exactly. or artwork. And again, by slowing down that, you know, whether it's a, a river, a mountain, a car, um, a boat, we can agree that we're all looking at the exactly. same thing, treating it like building blocks, if you will. So we have the first one, it's the concrete. Now that we can bring in the second one, which is, can we really look at this broader uh, milieu? I know that that's a French word. You can punch me in the <laughs> face, Michael. Um, but this broader milieu and context, other things that are happening in the image, right? And can we start to actually talk about um, how these elements may or may not fit together? Right. Um, to look at, are there, is there anything that's, that's going on that's related? What makes you say right. that? Right. Is this green really conveying sadness? Is this blue really conveying something else? Um, so again, it's taking a very bottom up approach to see these kinds of interconnections. And I think there's two pedagogical approaches and maybe I'm saying, uh, the same thing in a different way, but bear with me. One, we are absolutely trying to encourage and empower students to discuss the underlying rationale and the concrete evidence that supports their assertion. Mm. You've heard this mm -hmm. before. You have absolutely heard this before, yep. right? We've talked a couple of weeks ago about truly what's your evidence, what constitutes a fact. This is a very, very different way of getting at this kind of um of this kind of process, right? So what is the evidence that actually supports your assertion? Um, I think the second one, and I think this is one of the beauties about um, having these kinds of discussions in a group setting, it's a really 
practical way to demonstrate um, uh, to students in real time how knowledge, interpretation, and how meaning is a collective process. Right. right. So we are talking about an image. We may not know, and we're all coming in from very different experiences. We don't, we, ne- we don't know what the image is. We don't know who it's by. We look at it. What do you see? Well, I see X, Y, and Z. What makes you say that? And then very slowly in a group setting, I see this, I see that, I, I, I see that. Well, really, what makes you say that? And then slowly over time, it's sort of, you can see these ingredients being stirred, right? right? The, um, so that's uh, the second question. So, and I want to bring this to a colloquial uh, remembrance. Um, I would imagine that the vast majority mm-hmm. of the folks that are listening in remember the um, uh, the debacle of 2017, or was it 2016, with the blue and black and gold and white dress. Do you remember that whole mess? Oh, yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Folks yeah, were do, arguing hardcore as to whether or not what we were seeing was what we were seeing. Um, and I think this is a great example of why it's so pertinent for us to be able to ask the question of what makes you say that. Because when you ask folks, when folks would be like, it's white, it's blue, it's white, it's blue, or it's gold, it's black, whatever. When people were arguing those things, it was really interesting. I, I think back to my own personal interaction with it. I argued with my significant other, you know, Carmen and I had this whole conversation about it and Finally, I asked this question, what makes you say that? And she started to explain how the lighting was what allowed her to come to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. And so what it actually allowed for me to do was to see it through her eyes in a brief moment in time. It actually opened Mm -hmm. her her vision up to me. And so this, this gives us insight into each other's perspectives when we ask something as simple as what makes you say that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things I remember um, about graduate school, um, Phil Karspecken has got to be one of the greatest professors ever, 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 ever. Like, I, I, I think he's incredible. I really do. I learned from, from Phil and he taught this really advanced, um, um, you know, two core sequence in, in methods, right? Qualitative mm-hmm. methods. And his big thing was, you know, how do you really know? Because he, he's one of these guys, he's so out there in these wonderful, wonderful ways. Um, and he would say something like, I, I think, I think there's a reality, but I'm not sure, mm. you know? And, and, and sometimes I, I don't know what he's talking about right. because his mind is somewhere out and he's working things out. Um, but one of the things I remember is very early on in you know, the first or second week of class of the entire year, um, we were reading excerpts from, you know, from his book. We were reading excerpts from Italo Calvino, who was a Cuban-born writer who eventually at a young age moved to Italy. And we were reading some other folks. And one of the lines I remember reading was that you cannot trust your senses when it comes to um, these, these questions of reality or truth. Right. And I see myself being challenged so much when it comes to exactly what you mentioned. Is it really blue? Is it really red? And how do you know? Um, now I know it's, I don't think it was red. So I, uh, was it, was it blue and white? Blue, and, white? blue, blue and, white? and black and gold and white. That was the whole argument, Go. whichever you only saw wow. one of, you only saw 
you either saw it as gold and white or you saw it as blue and black. And there was all kinds of, uh, I mean, it broke the internet and for a period of time (laughs) and there were all kinds of neuroscientists that were arguing why people were seeing things the way they were. Uh, Mm -hmm. Folks were, you had uh, a psychiatrist that were talking about the developments of, you know, particular brains um, Mm. relative to, you know, female, um, female skewed brains versus male skewed brains. Uh, There was a whole conversation about non-binary, but like, it was really interesting to hear the discourse that came out. And I don't really know if, like, to be honest with you, it was hard to decipher what was like just a bunch of hooey and what actually was valuable. (laughs) Cause we're over here arguing over a photo that I still don't know who took it. Like, (laughs) well, well, all right. So that raises an interesting question, right though? Like, was that photo an original photo or was it manipulated? Well, and that's the conversation that a lot of folks started getting into. Yeah. Yeah. And my understanding was that the photo was an original photo. It just, by the time, I mean, it was a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of it by the time I was reading it so or looking at it. So like the digital defamation of it is like, <laughs> that. You, you, I mean, you know what I'm talking about where stuff, Yeah, you, we all used to bootleg music. We know what it sounds like when you can hear the artifact, <laughs> like all that extra no, no, random stuff. I, ha- I don't know what you're talking about, but go on. <laughs> I'm, I'm a documentarian. So the work that I was doing when I was bootlegging music was making a commentary about it. It was not for dance parties. I promise. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I was actually going to say it was a social commentary, you know, exactly. I mean, is, is there originality anymore and what is authenticity? Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm asking. <laughs> Appreciate Anyways. you giving my governmental cover. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> so the, uh, we're, we're left with a third question. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. So there's a, the third question again, very, very straightforward and very, very simple is what else can you find? Or should I say, what else can we find? So after students put forward initial interpretations that are based on concrete elements, whether that's colors, that shapes, that spatial relationships within the actual image itself, I then encourage them to explore other potential alternatives, right? So this question from a pedagogical perspective is that at the end of the day, it helps facilitate a discussion on how and by what means and processes people can look at the same image and arrive to different interpretations or conclusions. And I really, I, I really, just on a personal, I really love this question um, for um, for a very straightforward reason. I think it is fascinating, right, as an individual to give and to provide the same in a classroom, obviously in a structured environment, people can look at the same facts, the same evidence, and come to very different conclusions, and they can both be right. Mm. I think it's fascinating. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the really hard, um, yep. I, I will say I put on my my little academic hat on right now, um, my brain's fried, but whatever, is um, <laughs> is that you know, it, it's, can we, can we as, as people, um, as scholars, as teachers, as students, I would say I'm still a student very much so, but right. how can, how can exactly. I, as a student hold these two thoughts together at the same time and try to make sense of it? These two different conclusions, different interpretations, and they're both right. Right. I, I would say like, so you get back mm. to the image. Is it really this color, that color? Can't they be both? Why does it have to be an or like, like, why, why are we automatically saying that it's this or this 
um, as opposed to this other possibility that's over here. Right. Well, and, and to that point, I think there's the, the conversation of some of the more grandiose things that we're trying to, to struggle through as a, as a human society, as people. You know, when we say that we can have, we can see the same things and come to completely different conclusions, or we can see completely different things and come to the same conclusion. Mm-hmm. You know, how this thing that we're talking about with relation to, to VTS, you know, visual thinking strategies as a, as a way to move forward in some of the more difficult mired discussions. Mm-hmm. So how does this show up in other places? What, how do we apply it? Oh, I think you can, this can be applied in so many different ways. I know um, um, with scientists, for example, it's a very, in, in certain fields, it's a very image based field, right? In mm-hmm. the, in the humanities mm-hmm. or arts, um, very image. Um, the word I loved writing uh, was, was uh, sensual, like this idea of the senses, right? Mm. Um, right? Like it's a sensual experience to look at this. And then I'm looking at an image and I'm already in, you know, thinking about emotions. I'm already thinking about a lot of different things that at least for the initial discussion, I'm trying to bracket as much as I can focus number of buildings, car, whatever. Um, right. And then I, I, I think the, in different environments or settings, it's, you know, I, I think the real question is, is, is working with different audiences, maybe not necessarily different settings um, and trying right. to democratize how we can begin certain conversations. I know here we're just talking about artwork. Right. I know you just mentioned, you know, what are the broader ramifications or the broader implications? And it's really being able to say, okay, um, you know, regardless of where I stand or where you stand on certain things, what is it about what we're seeing here? This larger question of, is there really a common uh, framework for our realities? Is there really a common framework for some of the discussions we're really trying to have, but we don't necessarily know that we can right now? Um, I would argue that, yeah, we can absolutely have them. I think the real question is, um, I think twofold, um, you know, from the teacher side, one of the, one of the things that I'm very big on is emotional intelligence is that we have to be in tune with who we are, um, and with our emotions, because we know, depending on the kind of conversation that may happen, and I've certainly been in environments where I didn't know where the conversation was going to go, um, right you know, it, and it's, it's being prepared because sometimes it goes to wonderful places. Sometimes it goes to very raw places, depending on the subject right. matter. Um, right. and oftentimes it goes to very unexpected places. And exactly. I know that my, my role in that entire, um, interaction with students, with the art in different settings is really, um, a, at the foreground of my mind is it's not about me. Mm-hmm. I always go and as best as I can to, to stay um, in the backseat of the discussion, if you will. And right. if students really begin to, to open up and to start talking, it's just facilitating like, Hey, you know, hold on, let's, let's hear from so-and-so or that's a really interesting thought. What do you think? You know, you posing me right. posing this question to everyone. Um, but I, but I think that's part of it. I think, you know, we started visual 
this entire discussion around questions of literacy is questions of belonging. But I think ultimately there is something about, it gives us a medium to talk about this collective moment that we're in, um, in a way that can be, I would argue, quite productive. Um, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm a big advocate of, of museums, big advocate of artwork, big advocate of um, being able to try something that for the most part in a lot of places might be considered um, uh, unusual, might be one way to put it. Uh, but at the same right. time, at the end of the day, the point of this kind of discussion and in this kind of classroom, you know, it's called how to teach contentious issues. How do we approach yep. contentious issues through artwork? And I think this is a very exactly. great way of saying, can we get to a common framework? Can we get to a common understanding? And I'd argue that we can. Absolutely. Exactly. And, and to a large point, you know, there's plenty of other things outside of artwork that this can go to, but there's also plenty of contentious artworks, you know, the mm -hmm. function of monuments and who gets to be remembered and how they're remembered. You know, mm -hmm. that whole discussion of, you know, what do you see in this monument? What makes you say that? What else can we find? Like those are things that would allow for a, a communal discussion that may ground some of the basic thoughts and theories and practices that'll go on for the remainder of the semester. Um, Absolutely. I guess I'm I'm left with the question of why is it a necessity for us to come to common ground on what we're seeing inside of a piece? See, that's that's the interesting thing. I'm not even necessarily saying common ground. I'm saying common framework. And I think that's notable. I think that's a very valid I, thing. I, I, I can't say like, you know, does common ground exist? I don't know. I'm 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 more about what are the invisible frameworks that we have. What are mm. they? How do they inform uh, people's actions? Do they inform motivation? Are they motivated by action? You know, like what is this really, right. really difficult, um, difficult uh, dynamic to describe and to make sense of? And right. you know, with the contentious part, it's it's the framework. If we can get to the same framework, um, then I think we can start taking more productive steps um, mm. as a collective. That to me, I would argue, is is really what's at stake. I think this entire approach with using artwork is a very accessible way for uh, people of all stripes and persuasions to right. enter in some kind of discussion right. um, about what is it we're actually seeing, what is it that we're actually, um, uh, how are we actually trying to build meaning, how are we interpreting, and then I think you know. Are there any, is there anything that we're missing? Right. Um, it's pretty cool. It's really, really cool. Um, and I, there is one more exercise that's not in the guidebook, but um, I can chat about that for a second if you'd like. And if not, no worries. Go for it. I don't see why you wouldn't. Oh, okay. Well, well now that you mention it, thank you. Um, so the other one that's not in the guidebook, and again, to, 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 be, to be quite frank, like putting this chapter together it seems really, really easy and straightforward. It took a lot of time and a lot of reflection to break down in such a way, um, you know, how I understand pedagogically the importance of what's being presented and what the moment put together. Right. Um, so there is a link to, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating, an old article from 1936. You can click on the link for the, a lot of the theory that's behind some of this. 
the other one that I, the other exercise that I like is it's, it's very simple. It's called, um, uh, back to back. And this emphasizes not on the visual literacy, but more on the communication aspect, um, which is, so let's say we're in this hypothetical classroom, whether it's virtual, whether it's face to face, and let's say you take the next step and you select a couple of images that are absolutely pertinent, not only to the discussion you're having, but is appropriate to the audience that you're having the discussion with. Okay. Um, and so what I'd love to do, um, is, you know, I'm, is, um, essentially I'm pretending like I have the images in my hand, like I have pictures and I shuffle the pictures and I pair students, uh, together. So there's two students in a group and I give one person the image and I just mm. go down, Hey, Michael, you get this image. Hey, Chris, you get this. Hey, Tina, you get this one. Right. And then the person with the image has to describe for the other person what they're actually seeing. Mm. And so the person who is describing the image describes the image to the person who's supposed to be drawing the image. Mm. And the person who's drawing the image, you know, you're not allowed, uh, you're not, you're certainly not allowed to look at it. You can absolutely ask follow-up questions. Um, it, again, it's a very simple, very applied approach. Something I learned from the very, very kind staff over at the Nasher. And usually what comes out of this is I'll hear one of two things, right? So for the folks who are describing for the drawers, you know, what was that like? Something to the effect of like, you know, I found myself having to use words I haven't used in a while. Or mm. what I was describing, they were asking me questions and I didn't know um, how to respond because I couldn't tell what it is that they were actually seeing in their mind's eye. Right, right. So is something foregrounded? How large is it? What's the perspective, et cetera? In some ways, this is like a visual version of telephone, where mm -hmm. instead of passing the word of whatever was said before, I'm passing to you what my understanding of what is in front of me, and you don't get the luxury of being able to see it. So you have to be able to, to comprehend from your own frame of reference what I'm trying to say. Um, mm -hmm. I definitely like this as a, as a discussion point, because I can get at, I think you're getting at the ability for miscommunication to be pretty foreground easily. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, and you think of most of most issues, I would argue, um, from experience, um, that miscommunication is the source of a lot of tension is the source of a lot of problems in the classroom, anything from, and I think we've all been there. You can imagine the teacher that you mm -hmm. probably didn't like the most. Um, and, you know, with a little bit of hindsight, it's sort of like, oh, I can see why I misinterpreted X, Y, and Z because I was seven, they were X right. amount of years old and right. I get it now. Um, or, or frankly, sometimes, um, you know, how exactly. you're given feedback in the classroom, right? Somebody's really trying to encourage you, but man, I didn't right. hear the words. Exactly. I just felt the tone. Right. And that's, I think that's, that's I forget certainly what the, the phrase is, but I know that many people have heard it. Uh, you know, many, many years later after your students have left, they will not remember what you said. They'll only remember how you made them feel. And so this is where we get into being your best self as an educator all the time. Um, cause you really don't, it's, it's unfortunate. You don't really have a choice not to, especially when you're dealing with vulnerable people groups. And I would argue that a lot of college students are at different spaces yeah. in their lives that are the precipice of making decisions about themselves uh, and how they see themselves in the world. 
Um, mm-hmm. So, mm. yeah, I really appreciate that. I mm. have no idea what sticks. No clue. Well, so if you were going to leave us with something, because I'm looking at the the time and, and realizing how often we like to run really, really long with our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so listener, for what it's worth, I know the actual episode is sometimes an hour and a half, 90 minutes. We talk for over two and really? a half hours. Like, so we can do this all day long. Um, yeah. So it's one of these... You, you know, I love you, but I, you're probably sick of our voice and that's, cool. <laughs> no, no, I'm not offended. I, I think so. If you're going to, so you do a really <laughs> great job of always giving us with a, a next step or a lesson or the big takeaway. If, if I'm brand new to this whole visual thinking strategy things for myself, how do I get it under belt first? Mm. And then how would I go about introducing it to my students? I mean, I think the the first place to start is I think at the very, very beginning is really start trying to get a sense of what your assumptions are. What, you know, as we started today's conversation, what is literacy? What do I hope people get out of an experience? You know, I know one of the things we talked about, and I believe it was either in episode one or two, you know, am I simultaneously trying to, with mm-hmm. the construction of a syllabus, I think that was the example, um, simultaneously yep. provide access and build structure at the same time. Am I excluding while I'm trying to, to be as inclusive as possible um, and get a sense of where you're at there. Um, I think the next step is really trying to push the boundary of, you know, truly if I had to approach a topic or an area from an entirely different perspective, or if I had to choose an image that best encapsulates what I'm really, really trying to get at and what I really, really hope students get out of the experience, Mm. what would that be? How would I describe it? You know, it's, it's going through this process. Of course we can do it in our minds, but then really just, just trying to, to, you know, to, to, to reach out to friends, to get some feedback, because what you're really doing there is you're borrowing from one sense that we always rely on as teachers, which is pen and paper. There might be some um, a bit of lecture. Maybe there's a bit of discussion. And we say, okay, what if we scrapped all of that, all of that completely, and said, you know what? At the end of the day, I want my students to have a better understanding of this, this, and this. I found this really interesting artwork about that has an image of this. And I think based on what's there, that we can get there at the end of whether that's 90 minutes, whether it's 60 minutes, I think we can get to a point where in reality, I know this is an artwork about this, but we're really talking about democracy. Right. Right. We're really, really, really talking about uh, poverty. We're really talking about, um, you know, power, depending on the image or wealth. Um, or just being down and out or being hungry, right? These very visceral um, um, moments that that connect us as people. Right. Um, And and I think the other, you know, as you've probably heard me say a lot of time, you have more power than you think. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's nothing stopping you. There's absolutely nothing stopping you. And I guess the the last thing I want to ask you about is if if I'm going to use something that is a very hard to digest image 
you know, I, I want to, and just to, just to allow folks to think about this, you know, we're not necessarily only talking about still images. Mm-hmm. Um, moving images have the same proclivity to have these same three questions asked of them. Um, and so if I wanted to introduce uh, a conversation about inequities based off of something as simple, and, and I say simple just because it's in the, the yeah, ethos yeah. of the world, uh, police brutality. Mm-hmm. No, I know that what one person's going to see culturally may be different than another person's going to see culturally. So how would I go about introducing something like that if I, if I wanted to show, you know, in, in a paired text way, um, you know, the, the capital insurrection next to, you know, George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor protests, mm. like what, how, how do I put those things into a space knowing that they are inevitably going to invoke some preconditioned mm-hmm. thoughts. Yeah. So that's a really good and a very difficult question. So I'm going to do the best that I can. And I'm not saying I'm can answer it as fully or as substantive as I would like, but I'm going to give it my best shot. Okay. Um, I think to even approach something, um, that kind of effort, obviously it's a fair amount of thought. It's thinking about your audience. It's thinking about the kinds of questions you would ask. Certainly it depends. Um, it, it also, yeah, it depends upon where you live because again, there's certain things right. that might seem out of place right. uh, in one place, but make total sense in another, um, uh, common cultural reference points, right? The exactly. kind of, exactly the kind of thing that I would talk about. Um, so, so as you were talking, I'll give you a very, I was thinking of NWA, right? Hmm. Um, okay. You know, it, it truly like, I, you know, I, I grew up in the eighties and nineties. Um, well, I was born in the eighties, grew up in the nineties. Um, same, <laughs> but it's, it's one of these things like you're presenting, you mentioned police brutality. The, I came up with NWA. I remember what ice cube was wearing when that came out. Mm. I remember the energy that was like coming out of speakers. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and so it becomes a, a thing where, you know, if you're picking a medium, if it's music, right. Even if it's classical music, right. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this earlier in preparation for today. I hadn't thought about the 1812 overture by Shostakovich in who knows how long, right? <laughs> like it's, it's, you know, it, we hear it every 4th of July. We hear a two minute version of it. Reality. It's, a 15 to 20 minute song. If it's 20 minutes, yeah, there's a lot going on there. Right. But it's one of these things, like if I'm teaching a history class, what I would ask questions like what must somebody be feeling or what must be happening in this moment for someone to produce this kind of music. Right. And it's not even, you know, Context aside, you know, because I know people may understand Shostakovich was writing because the Russians kicked the French out, right? And it was this big, glorious moment in Russian history, and he wanted to capture it. And I think he did a wonderful job. Um, but even with something with with a group like NWA, it's asking a question of you may not know the lyrics, you may not agree with the lyrics, and even if we listen just to the instrumental, can you imagine? And I do mean the word imagine. What somebody must have experienced or how they felt to produce something like this. Exactly. Right. Because again, it's thinking about how do we create these, 
these empathetic bridges as as much as we can. Um, and of course, that's going to vary. I think the same. Um, you know, we, we started this with with Star Wars. Um, yep. You know, there's there's a, a litany of films. I think the the one that's coming to mind right now is Philadelphia with with Tom Hanks mm. and and Denzel Washington, yep. who is one of the the two greatest actors of our generation. Um, and again, it starts with a it, it's a story, it's a movie, and then it very quickly becomes something bigger than they are. Right. Exactly. And I think that's that's the beauty of this kind of approach, um, that even if we have to use our experiences as the place from which we start, that's an incredibly rich place to start because that's where um, meaning, interpretation, the empathetic bridge, that's where it all starts. Um, you know, my favorite, my, one of my favorite quotes, and this is by uh, Richard Delgado, who is a, a lawyer um, he's a scholar, he's a storyteller, but he always says, and let me make sure I get this right. Cause I do not want to mess it up. Um, stories are the oldest and most primordial meeting ground in human experience. Their allure will often provide the most effective means of overcoming otherness mm. of forming a new collective based on a shared story. Mm. And that's Richard Delgado. And the way I understand that is at the end of the day, if we share a story, the, your story becomes my story. Right. And my story in a very small way becomes yours. Yeah. Thank you so much, Cisco, for today. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been real. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I am so proud of this project. I'm proud of you. Um, I want to thank a lot of people who are listening and keep doing the good work. You're not alone. I promise. You're not alone. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week, buddy. It's like, actually, when you know, when you hit, when you cut my hair like that, people make fun of me. They really legit make fun of me. <laughs> <laughs> and then you gotta go to the schoolyard and the other countries and little kids are making fun of you and you just get clowned. Yeah, like, yeah man, you can't. That's not, that's not gonna cut it. It's, it's bad yeah. for everybody. Yeah. It's bad for business. It's bad for everybody. Funny, man. <laughs> what kind of business does a fourth grader have, anyways? You know, let's talk about that for a minute. You know? What kind of. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to Centering the Margins. If you liked what you heard, you can rate, review, and subscribe to Centering the Margins on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Be sure to check back next Tuesday for the new episode. In addition, be sure to go pick up Cisco's new easy read, How to Teach Contentious Issues, a practical guidebook for educators on Apple Books. Hey, Cisco, tell us a little bit more about that 30%. Absolutely. 30% of all proceeds will be donated to Durham Children's Initiative. Durham Children's Initiative's mission is to create a pipeline of high quality services spanning from birth through college and career for children and families living in Durham, North Carolina. There are more than 65 partner organizations and thousands of community members who actively contribute to the initiative. It takes a village and we at Centering the Margins wanna make sure that the village is still here post COVID. Please go find and buy the guidebook on Apple Books. Your money's going to a great cause. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.
commented, he was like, have you seen that meme floating around? What does that tell you? And he's like, people in Vermont make very nice mittens. <laughs> 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 That's all he said. <laughs> Dude. Uh. <laughs>